welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I'm extremely delighted to be sitting down with Brenda Eisen, an architect and founding principal of Eisen Architecture, an award-winning all-female architectural firm based in Toronto. Brenda, very pleased to have you on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we just jump right in? Can we just start by going through your career journey leading up until today? Okay. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to start a little bit way back. My grandfather was an architect um, and I grew up with a really big family. We were all very, very close and always at my grandparents' house. Um, on any given day, there was like a handful of cousins sleeping over. The door was always literally open. Like my grandmother never physically closed it. We just walked in and out. And they lived in this beautiful mid-century modern house filled with like modern furniture, not the type of furniture that scares clients today because they're worried about like kids around white sofas and sharp corners. But that was their entire house. And so we would sleep over regularly and my grandfather was always in charge of like the programming for the, for the grandchildren <laughs> and coming up with, with activities for us. And he used to take us to his job sites frequently and he'd walk us through and explain, you know, the different stages of construction and how things worked. And sometimes we'd be really lucky that there would be a trade on site and we'd get to like watch welding or ask oh, questions cool. of somebody else. And I've always loved, you know, understanding the how and the why and, you know, making things. And so I was really fascinated by the world of construction and I had exposure to it at such a young age. Um, I have a very creative side and I also have this other like math side. I love math. I'm good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And my grandfather was partners with my uncle, his son. And they always used to joke that I'm the next architect in the family. Like whenever I'd bring home you know, a great math test or draw a beautiful picture. Like it was always like, okay, she's, she's up, you know, up next. I didn't want to do exactly what they were doing. And I wasn't even certain that architecture was the right path um, then or for a long time, actually. But I always knew that I wanted to do my own thing and have my own business. Um, In high school, I kept taking you know, art electives whenever they were available. And I continued to be strong in both the creative arts and math. So my teachers and guidance counselors all also encouraged the architectural (laughs) direction. You're predestined. In a way, yes. Um, and, And but then I have, you know, my parents who both work in business, they actually met doing their MBA. And a lot of our dinner table conversation was always about, you know, business, what they were doing, business growth goals. Um, I actually in university, I had to do like a balance sheet whenever I needed money from them. I had to like produce this, you know, income statement showing what (laughs) I was, what I was earning as a TA and where my money was going. And, um, you know, I was sort of integrated in that world from really early on too. Um, and, and within our house, there was, you know, always a focus on excellence and performance. And of course, you know, post-secondary education wasn't even optional. Right. Um, so I sort of defaulted into applying for architecture school because I knew it would allow me to continuing the, to, to continue studying the subjects that I really loved and that I was good at. Right. Um, even though I still wasn't totally sure about architecture as a profession, um, and, and back then in high school, I didn't 
understand like the nuanced differences between the different architecture schools. So I just researched schools based on like reputation. And I went to the best architecture schools according to whatever had been published. And, you know, that was sort of how I started with my education. Um, I think that as a creative, I think all creatives are wired a little bit differently um, in that we get our fulfillment from from passion and from making something that's important or beautiful or impactful right. rather than from other measures of success. Um, it, it is sort of interesting that not all architects are creative. Um, over oh. the years, I've kind of learned, you know, there's so many different types of architecture and, you know, there's the, the hard side of architecture, you know, the engineering technical side and, and just a really a whole spectrum. And that this is part of why I struggled early on, I think, Um, but there were two really like profound periods during this journey where I understood like what my own passion was and how it kind of fit into this world. So the first one was, um, during my third year of undergrad, I went on exchange. Um, and in my undergraduate program, I felt that the teaching was very prescriptive or, or my interpretation of it was. So like architecture is this, architecture is this, you right. can understand it like this. And of course, as you know, a good little student, I would take all my notes and try to memorize, okay, architecture is this and you know, regurgitate it when necessary. Um, but then I went halfway around the world and I learned from a completely different set of teachers that came from you know, their own educational and practical backgrounds. And it seems so obvious now, but my, my previous education in my like conservative small town high school hadn't really highlighted or introduced critical thinking and like freedom in, mm. in thought. And, you know, it took me going halfway around the world to realize that architecture isn't this and architecture isn't that architecture can be a million different things. And it's up to me to carve out my own space and my own definitions. Awesome. And so that experience for me more than anything really reinforced that I want to do my own thing within this space. And I want to be the one to define like what it is that architecture means to me. Right. And that, that happened in parallel with like living in Europe and, and traveling on weekends to places where, you know, you have the richest architectural history sitting side by side with these like super intense modern interventions. Right. And I really fell in love with architecture then, like maybe even for the first time. Um, oh, interesting. Before it was like this fascination with construction and being in Europe and traveling so much, you know, kind of that evolved into, you know, the finished product and the architecture and, you know, the different periods of architecture. Um, and then I guess the second, you know, moment or second time where my passion really led me was, was later when I was working, um, I worked at this really special, um, collaborative, like hands-on studio in Toronto. It was a design studio, um, in a huge industrial building within which like under the same company and same umbrella, there was like a woodworking shop, a metal fabrication shop, um, a CNC machine, plasma cutter, 3d printer, finishing studio, like anything to make like anything of your dreams. Right. So working there, we would draw something, um, then physically print it out, walk to the printer, take the drawing and then walk back into the shop and meet with, you know, the various craftsmen Uh and have to explain the drawings to them and what we wanted them to make. And 
that was crazy because the communication, like it became really clear what information needed to be on the drawings, what information didn't, and how somebody who's seeing the drawings for the first time understands my intention of what I want to be produced. Um, and also if you're making anything that required like wood and metal or, you know, any combination of, of different people that had to work on it, it was up to me to coordinate between the various shops and understand the order of, of how things needed to happen and anticipate, um, you know, the end product and how to work backwards. Right. And our work there was across all scales. It was actually um, like a design build too. So we were making furniture, product, and houses um, in this experience. And so so that time, I fell in love with making things um, through understanding how they're made and understanding, you know, in a way like the trial and error of the little tweaks that can go into making something physically stronger or sleeker or more functional Um, and and so that was just an incredible formative experience and that's what I do now. I make things, um, but now those things are like beautiful, modern, high-end houses. Um, but our approach is that we integrate as much of the design as we can into every scale. So like from the approach from the street, the sight lines, custom door levers, like the window details, sculptural stairs, which is like such a passion of mine. And, you know, the way that the spaces unfold around the stairs and it's the process of designing and the process of making that are driving what I do. And I think what lead to such a special and different Mm. end product. So there's so much that I want to dive into in kind of that overarching journey in a, in a number of different facets. But what first and foremost jumps out at me is just you just kind of ooze passion for the space, right? As you talk about falling in love with the architecture you got exposed to while traveling, falling in love with the process of building and making, right? And now, you know, even as you list off the various things that you design inside of a home, I didn't even realize that that is in the realm of architecture. I would have thought maybe that was industrial design or some other form of design or creation. It's very cool to hear that. And I think personally, I was very interested out of the gate to have this interview with you because, you know, and I actually talk about this in a, in a recent podcast, but, you know, I was a a talented visual artist growing up. I was good at math. Everyone's like, oh, those two things collide into architecture. And for me, right, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, but I like to make, I like to create. I loved building Lego when I was a kid and building forts or this, that, and the other. And these things all made sense. And there's a, I think there's a sense of prestige with the title of being an architect and this idea of building a building, whatever the case is. And so that was the path I set off on in high school initially as well. But then I think there was a moment where I spoke with somebody who was an architect and they honestly turned me away from the career path because they talked about it took them more than a decade to find their footing and find like a lucrative, uh, you know, role or career within this, within the industry that, you know, it was challenging for one reason or another. And I just remember that also they weren't enthusiastic about what they were talking about. Whereas like if I, for example, had spoken to you as like a 15 year old or 16 year old and heard the way you're talking about it, I probably would have doubled or tripled down on that career path, which I find really interesting that it's all it takes is, you know, one slightly less enthused conversation to turn somebody away from a path at that sort of age. So I find that that just some context around why I was very excited about this conversation to begin with. And I maybe will go into 
the industry as a whole in a little bit, but I want to jump all the way back because you talk about kind of the influence of your family. Uh, and this idea that your grandfather was an architect, he took you to the sites, you got exposed. That's unique. Not a lot of people get that sort of exposure. And then on top of that, you know, the business acumen that you just got to get exposed to through your parents and that fostered your early kind of predisposition to wanting to build a business. Did, was that, did that kind of come to life in other aspects of your kind of childhood and upbringing and teenage years where you wanted to create and do your own thing? Or, or was were you always just out of the gate focused on like, I'm going to own a business when I get older? Yeah, I think that everything evolved at different at different times. And it was always sort of in me because of those experiences that right. I described. But, you know, we were always like, my brother and I came up with like a hundred businesses as kids that we wanted to do or that we even tried to do. You know, even when I was super young, I would like make up, you know, clubs and the clubs would have membership rules. And, you know, it was always kind of that that focus. And there would it would always be around something creative as well. Very cool. So I mean, as you, you know, kind of took shape from, I guess, your approach to, to wanting to own a business from that perspective. And then you, you ended up embarking on kind of going to school for architecture and maybe, you know, as you were starting to find your love for, for architecture, was there a particular place that really inspired you or is it just to travel across Europe in general? Because I mean, for me, selfishly, like I also love traveling for the purpose of architecture and, and visiting and seeing unique buildings. Rome, Italian architecture, Florence, like it's from a young age. I had an infatuation with that. Was there a particular place or was it just the contrast with where you came from? A lot of it was the contrast and seeing, you know, really old buildings that have withstood the test of time and how they are juxtaposed with really new buildings and how that can work together because we don't really have that here in North America. Um, But for me, everything kind of always came back to residential architecture and, you know, living in so many different houses and apartments or staying in different hotels and how this space, you know, not just what it looks like, but the proportion of each room, the flow between spaces, affects how you live. And then on top of that, like the, you know, how much natural light you're getting in the space and what your views are and and those things affect your, your mood and your mental health even. And so I think having so much change and experiencing so many different things was, was kind of that aha moment for me. Very cool. Very cool. And just another case for expanding one's horizon by traveling and kind of seeing new places and new cultures. I think that obviously just a critical thing to do very early on. But, you know, I, I particularly found it interesting as you talked about kind of where you fell in love with the process, right? Uh, during your time at the design studio, um, you, you talk about this idea of kind of creating the drawing, which I parallel to me uh, in my career, I work in consulting, kind of the data strategy space and digital business transformation. I parallel that to like the initial strategy and the vision for like a project or a platform or a digital experience, let's say. And I think what makes somebody a really good strategist is being able to go deep with a little bit of the technology to then work with your partners who are going to bring it to life, you know, digitally, which is the equivalent of physical, I guess, in this uh, example, um, and being able to understand how their different pieces fit together, what should happen first, how it all integrates. Do you find that that ability and what you developed there in terms of understanding what order things should be built in, et cetera, does, did that kind of set you apart as an architect and kind of help you kind of find your successful path down the line? Yeah. And I think that in a way it still does like understanding how things are made 
um, really translates to a better initial drawing that has less, um, you know, more, more chances of success in the future. And, and I'm just thinking of like, you know, the first example off the top of my head is kind of wall thicknesses. Um, you know, when you're dealing with, we do a lot of houses that have sub basements, which is like a second basement under the basement or, um, excavated space under the garage, which means that the cars, like the slab that the cars sit on is actually a structural slab because there's a room underneath. And so all of those things translate into different wall thicknesses. And so when you start with floor plans, um, and you're, you know, presenting certain room sizes to the clients and, and certain dimensions are important to them or to a collection they might have or whatever it is. And then, you know, that's all schematic. You're not drawing what's inside the walls. You're drawing just a, a layout. Right. And then when you get to the design development stages and you start working with all of the other, you know, consultants and partners, you have your integrating, incorporating your structural and your waterproofing and all those things. Um, if you're not understanding those things initially and accounting for those things, then you might have to take space from interior dimensions that have already been approved. And right. then the, the floor plan might have to shift depending on the size of the lot. Um, and so there's lots of examples like that about how understanding the construction translates to, you know, more success earlier in design. Um, we're also, I'm personally like very passionate about, um, waterproofing details and like water control layers. Oh, I, I really feel that the, the future of, um, climate change and how we feel it here in this, you know, in Ontario and in this zone is going to be in the form of like water related natural disasters. And so that's something we put a ton of focus on in our projects. And I think, um, in a lot of cases, we're pushing our builders to think about things, you know, in a way that they haven't, which um, doesn't always come from the architectural side. Very cool. It, it just everything that you're kind of articulating to me just has such clear transferability to so many other industries. This idea of having that depth of knowledge helps you be more efficient and effective with your work earlier on. Uh, prevents, you know, rework or adjustments down the line that could have tons of cost implications. This all sounds like a website building project as well, or like, you know, any other kind of digital consulting work that I've done. It, it's, it's so very clearly transferable for someone to walk away with and kind of apply to other industries, which I think is very cool. Um, now, you know, following your time with the design studio and pre, I guess, standing up your own business, what did that portion of your career look like? Were you working kind of with bigger architecture firms and what was that experience like? I worked at um, a variety of size firms. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always drawn back to residential. Like mm-hmm. residential is our specialty, and I I really value designing spaces for the people that are going to use them instead of for you know the general public or speculation. Right. Um, and so, you know, I I had different. Um, different experiences that weren't all positive. And and then I would always just sort of return to the residential world and, you know, kind of re reiterate why I love it and and what's important about it to me. Um, So the majority of my experience is at smaller firms and at firms doing um, residential work. And, and so a lot of the ways in which I've structured my own company um, are based on either things that I saw in those companies that were successful or things that I wanted to do differently on purpose. Right, right. Now, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I guess in working in the residential space, there's an enormous amount of, I guess, interaction with people, right? As you're helping design, you're working with a wide spectrum of, of folks with very different backgrounds. 
and you're dealing with something that's super important. It's their home, maybe their forever home, maybe an investment, all of these things being super important. You know, I guess, how did you develop those skills, right? Because I think early on without the exposure to, to that, and particularly once you get to owning your own business, there's a lot of stakes at hand, right? Like one bad project, you know, the negative kind of uh, word of mouth that comes with that, that could be damaging. So, you know, your ability to mitigate that and work well with the client and kind of develop a really strong relationship, I'm sure is super critical to these types of projects that are so close to home for them. A hundred percent. I always say when people call me like for the first discovery call, I always say to them, the best way you can set your project up for success is by putting together a team with which you have a good fit, right? right. And that fit is, you know, in terms of communication, you know, a lot of the things you mentioned, process, aesthetics too. Like we've had cases, you know, early on in my career when when I didn't have the opportunity to be as choosy about the projects I took. Um, I would take projects that were, you know, contemporary or transitional, not quite modern. And I'm so passionate about modern architecture and modern details, and I, I do it so well. And I think that, I mean, there is a lot of beauty in other styles, but it's not my taste. So I'm not as passionate about it. Right. And so you set yourself up for these, you can set yourself up for these moments where the client really wants something that you're not giving them. And that in itself provides so much tension because, you know, I'm pushing for it to be more modern than they're comfortable with. And that makes them frustrated. And I think they want something that doesn't look as nice as it could be. And I know better. So that makes me frustrated. Um, And so luckily I've had the opportunity for the past, you know, several years to be so choosy about the clients that we work with. And we have this really intense initiation process that we do when somebody calls us, like we have a series of meetings that we don't charge the client for that we, that we conduct before I'll even write a fee proposal. And I need to make sure that there's a mutual fit in terms of all of those things. And, and communication style is also really important because it's most of our projects take around three years from the time they sign with us until the time they move into their house. And you're talking regularly with them and for most people, this is the most money they've ever spent on something. Right. In most cases, it's not even their money. They're borrowing and they're uncomfortable right. um, with the finances. The money goes out really quickly during the construction stage. And also, it's their personal home. So it's, it's very emotional. Right. Um, and, and there are times that are difficult to navigate. And if you don't have that foundation... I could, I could see it, you know, being very disastrous. And I've observed that, you know, at previous jobs or with other architects or friends that are using other architects. And that's, that's a big focus for us. Very interesting. And I think what I find particularly interesting about how you articulated it is, you know, if you, you begin maybe even subconsciously leaning more modern, right. And that frustrates the client because it's not necessarily their vision of what they want. It's not even a matter of what's better or what's worse, right? Because I think in other industries, you could say, well, no, you know, this path is better for X, Y, and Z reasons. Here, that's irrelevant. It's about what is going to make that client happy and what is beautiful to them, right? And so that is like a really interesting and difficult thing to balance. But I think it also lends itself well to kind of what you described being uh, specializing in the type of design that you love. Because that's going to make you better at what you do if you're in love with it, right? Um, and then by selecting the clients that overlap with that des- design, I guess, or aesthetic, right, uh, uh, de- desire, that just makes the ability to do great work substantially easier. I think that makes 
so much sense um, and is actually a little bit of a contrast to kind of working with clients maybe in, in the industry that I'm familiar with, which I think is very interesting. Um, I guess from here, I'd love to understand a little bit more about like the architecture industry in general, because, you know, for traditional corporate environments, you have these ladders that you cry climb, right? And, you know, you, you kind of understand what's expected at like the title of director versus vice president, et cetera. Does that exist in the architecture world in smaller firms or bigger firms? What does growth as like an architectural professional, let's say, look like in absence of, of owning your own business? And what is that general culture like? Is it based on accreditation? I'm very curious to learn more about that. Okay. So architecture is a very old school profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and the powers that be are very resistant to change uh, because it's so you know, process-based and linear and takes so much time and effort, once people have gone through it, they don't feel that the next generation should not. So oh, there's there's a lot of uh, conversation around the process. But so in order to be an architect, um, you have to have a professional degree in architecture, which in Canada um, is a master's of architecture. There's actually one undergraduate program available that's a professional architecture degree. It's five years. Um, but, but the majority of architects will also have a master's in architecture. Once you graduate from architecture school, you have to apply, um, for a certificate that shows that your education is, um, you know, up to par with the, with our, uh, governing body, which is the OAA. Um, so you, you first make this application and then you register for the OAA as an architectural intern. So everyone who graduates, once your education is accepted, you're an architectural intern. Wow. And then you have to, um, log a certain number of hours, uh, within, you know, different experience categories. So when I was going through the process, uh, it, you had to log 5,600 hours. They've recently changed it to be 3,700 hours, but it's, that's not just the total hours because a certain amount of those hours have to be in, you know, site time for construction. A certain amount of those hours uh-huh. have to be in project management. And so, um, everybody in this process has to have a, mentor. It's an official mentor that the, the OAA approves and your mentor, your employer signs off on your hours and then your mentor reviews those hours. And so you go through that process and it takes for most people, I'd say an average of five years. Once you've completed logging your hours, then there's a series of exams that you have to write uh, in order to become a licensed wow. architect. And so there's four exams currently. Um, and each, each one is like half a day and it, you know, one's on the building code and one's on the business of architecture. And, um, it's like a very intense process to study those exams and pass. So then once you have all your hours and then once you have all your exams, then you can apply, uh, for a license to be a licensed architect until you have the license, your title is intern architect and you can only work as an intern architect. So for, for many people, that's like 10 or 15 years of time for some, some people, you know, do it in less. And then once you're a licensed architect, you can run your own practice or you can be a partner um, at an architecture firm, but you can't be a partner or have a practice um, if you're not licensed. So that's a, a little an overview of the process. Um, and then once you're licensed, there's also continuing education hours required. I think that's like most wow. other professions. So it's it's a long 
ladder to climb. And I think a lot of the jobs that are available are in these massive firms where you might be doing the same thing every single day, right? Like doing a cladding pattern on a high rise might take six months and that's your only job. And you come in every day, you're working on one project, you're working on one pattern. Um, And so, you know, a lot of the work is quite tedious and, and it really, you know, like with any other profession, there's just so many types of architect that you can be. And, and so, um, one of the things that the OAA suggests and focuses on is, you know, getting those hours in different, you know, experience categories and different size firms so that when you get to the end of the process, you have an idea of which, which direction you want to go. That's, I mean, it's so fascinating and that is an incredibly long process. I mean, 10 to 15 years, we're talking about an equivalent to, you know, uh, getting like becoming a doctor or like a medical practitioner, right? Like, I don't know that anyone by default, the average individual understands that that takes that amount of accreditation, time and education and internship. I guess what I'm really curious about, because you talked about the fact that there is this old guard that is pushing back on change. But for example, what is some of the change that is trying to drive or disrupt this process? So for a long time, it was changing the number of hours required, which, as I mentioned, went through. So they reduced it from 5,600 to 3,700. Lately, people really dislike the title of intern architect. So, Mm. you know, you could be in your late thirties and have been out of school for 10 years and your business card still says intern and interns a word that's become synonymous with like an unpaid position of somebody who gets coffee in other industries. And so, um, that's come up a couple of times. We recently voted, I think last year, um, and it didn't pass. It stayed as intern. Um, also being able to log work experience hours while you're still in school versus not being able to, you know, in summer jobs or gap years, uh, right. versus only being allowed to, to start once you have your professional degree. So, um, people have just pushed been pushing for an easier path to licensure and for something that more reflects like the modern times and other professions. Wow. And so I guess, you know, is it just a matter of time as some of that old guard moves on and, you know, some of the folks of younger generations start to move into those sort of leadership positions in these uh, governing bodies? Because it doesn't even sound like there's a push to, for example, change necessarily the requirements. It's just to accelerate them and then also change kind of some of the optics of the titling, right? Which seems almost entirely reasonable. But I think that's, you know, it's intensely interesting to me to hear about that because I, I, you know, as I've been doing this podcast, I've just learned about different industries like the legal industry and some of the, you know, challenges about the old guard there and how partnership works in that industry. And it's just very interesting to, to hear about that here. And I guess I'm curious also, uh, maybe as a follow-up question, when you do become a partner at a larger firm, is that like a traditional like uh, interpretation of the word or you're, you know, do you have equity in the firm and even... Very interesting. I to go back to your first question. I see the change starting to happen, and I think it'll continue to happen. But it's going to really take a lot of time. Um, architects think very highly of themselves, and it's a <laughs> it's a very important profession with with you know so many things to know and and so many things to be an expert in. And so I think there is a lot of reluctance to to loosen up, you know, the requirements. Um, but it, but it is happening and I think it'll continue to happen. Um, and then yes, 
I, the partner, partner in a firm can be structured in different ways, but I would say traditionally, yes, there's, there's equity involved. It's somebody that's sharing in, in the business ownership and business development and profit. Very cool. And so I guess maybe in smaller firms now, like let's say the business that you've started, do you adopt like a similar partner structure or is it much more kind of, um, I guess, is, is it is it different than that? Is it maybe like a more traditional business model? I guess I'm curious. And maybe now from here, maybe you can just talk about your transition from working in firms altogether to starting your own and kind of what that experience looks like. It's an interesting question because I'm the only licensed architect in, in my practice. And I... Um, will always be, you know, it's my name on the business and I'm always right. going to be the only person that owns the business. Um, but I think there's a number of other ways that it can be structured. Um, you know, associate is also a job title in the industry of architecture, which is sort of like one under partner and it's a very senior level um, position. So I right. think that's, um, you know, as my team becomes licensed and two of them are uh, finished all their hours and all their exams and just haven't um, receive their licenses. I think that'll be more of the direction um, that we go in. And uh, my experience in working for the smaller firms, it was the same kind of thing. It was like the namesake of the firm were the right. partners there. And then there were associates and junior associates and then interns. Very cool. And so, I mean, I guess there's an evolution of your own growth mindset that you had to kind of shift, right? As you go from working at, you know, other people's smaller firms or these larger firms to starting your own. And now you're cultivating the growth and development of, of aspiring architects yourself, right? So how did you make that transition? I guess, where did the influences to your approach to cultivating that growth come from? So I think that being an entrepreneur in architecture is similar to being an entrepreneur in any industry, right? It comes from the desire to do something differently right. and also to, you know, differently from, from anything else that's being offered out there. And then also finding the balance between the creative fulfillment and making money. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about your perception of the architecture industry from the outside. Um, and, and, you know, the, we talked about the length of the path to licensure and that's also the length of the path, path to being financially successful within the right. industry. And so I think a lot of it was about seeing, you know, different business models and, understanding that staying within the system wasn't going to propel me to success as fast as I wanted it to. Got it. Um, but also on the creative side, you know, I have strong opinions about how things should be done and how things should look and working under somebody else as a creative isn't always so easy, especially in times when I was managing the projects and I was connecting with my clients and felt that I better understood what they wanted than what was coming out of the office. Um, so, so those were sort of the things that drove me to start my own business um, and, and prioritize success and the growth of the business, but, but not at the expense of giving up the passion and the creative control. Very interesting. And I, I, I kind of love that, uh, the, the kind of the confidence that you described there in, in your vision for an understanding of what clients want, let's say, or kind of your distinct and different approach and wanting to be able to have that creative license that I think is maybe a little bit different than, you know, traditional entrepreneurship where you're starting maybe a more conventional small business, right? Because this is so 
creative vision driven, right? It's like, I want to bring to life my creativity, right? And, and kind of the visions that I have. Um, and this is the way for me to do that and do that faster, I think is very interesting. And then the idea of accelerating to that financial security, right? But balancing, you know, the creative piece with that. Also, I mean, that's got to be a difficult thing. Do you find yourself, for example, does that balance ever get upset and you have to kind of ground yourself or ground the, the direction of the firm? Sometimes. I mean, there's a very small percentage of people that actually build with an architect, you know, that set out to design a house from scratch and want to work with an architect and an even smaller percentage of those people that want modern design. Um which in this world seems kind of crazy to me. Yeah. But there seems to be a lot of people that want to like charge their Tesla in front of and like plug their iPhones into a house that looks like it's 200 years old, but isn't. Interesting. Um, so already we, we have a sizable share of that small percent of the small percent. And, you know, when you talk about growth from here, the question is, you know, do we do houses that aren't, 100% modern because there is uh, a much larger percentage of that. And that would upset the balance, you know, of what you're describing, because then the creativity and the passion goes down um, in order to prioritize the growth. What we've done until now, which has been, you know, which has worked very well for us is that, you know, I still limit the number of projects that we take on at a time, but we've expanded our scope of services uh, and we take on a lot more of a project than a typical architecture firm. So I think you even touched on this earlier, but, you know, we of course do the architecture, um, but we also have, you know, pre-designed services. Sometimes we work with clients when they're looking for a property, like we'll go with the real estate agent and meet them at every property and talk about the pros and cons. Um, we do landscape design, interior design, right. project management and furniture and accessories. And, and, you know, sometimes that scope even grows as the projects go on and we develop a relationship with the clients when they, you know, come to trust us and understand the value and, and what we're bringing. We, we have this one client who we finished their house like two years ago and they just really, um, trust us with everything. And they also want everything to like look very consistent. So, you know, she called a couple of weeks ago, she needed to buy a new hand soap for the powder room and wanted to make sure that like the bottle matched with the, with the original vision. So we're, we're even doing stuff like that years after the project is finished. That's very cool. And it's this idea of diversifying and broadening your offering beyond the core architecture, but very, um, strongly maintaining your creative vision uh, and being consistent there, that makes total sense, right? Which makes scaling, again, I think probably easier because you're not compromising kind of what it is that drives your passion for this space. Um, and again, I think whenever you have that intersection of passion and profession, it just makes working hard and, and kind of committing yourself to the work that much simpler. I think that's a really elegant solution to growth, right? As opposed to, for example, expanding and diluting your vision for architecture in general or design, which is very cool. I think that can transcend to any kind of in, uh, entrepreneurial venture or even someone's role in a more traditional corporate space is if you, for example, have a passion and that's what helps you accelerate your growth and work hard, diluting kind of that will probably have a more detrimental effect than it would staying committed, but finding other ways to scale yourself and grow, which I think is very cool and super transferable for people in other industries. Um, I'd love to understand a little bit more 
because you obviously, I, you know, as I kind of did a little bit of research on you before we had our initial conversations, you've been featured in a lot of different, like really high level publications, right? And I want to get an understanding of the impact that that has on the growth of your business and securing clients. Like, you know, is it something that you have to go out and secure? Or is it something that comes your way based on the work? Like, how does that world work? And, and what is the ROI on those types of activities? That's a great question. And the ROI is very difficult to measure. And it's, really? it's a conversation that we have internally a lot. Um, being published in this space is um, an active effort, uh, maintaining relationships with editors and making sure that they're seeing um, you know, your projects as they come out or letting them know that a, a project's going to be photographed soon. Um, it's an, it's an ongoing effort for sure. We want, we welcome all opportunities to talk about our work in a meaningful way. And so yeah. I think that, um, it, it's great that there's a platform for us to be able to do that, but there's never been a time that somebody cold calls me and says, okay, I saw this one house you did in the Globe and Mail, and now I want you to design my house, right? Like there, there isn't a one-on-one ROI. Typically when, when a big publication comes out, people that are already in my network who maybe I haven't spoken to in months or years will, will reach out. Um, and if, you know, if I start talking to a potential client, they might mention that they had seen it at some point, but it's one of many touch points, right? They'll say, you know, my friend recommended that, that I reach out to you. And then I remembered I had seen your project in whatever publication and like flagged it and it's still on my coffee table. So it's, um, it all kind of collects together, I think, to reinforce the brand. Um, but there's, there's definitely not like a one-to-one correlation and and the ROI is um, is difficult to assess because again we're you know trying to put out feelers and, and maintain these relationships to have you know to result in the end publication that's really interesting and I I, I mean I think I'm uh, curious about as you are embarking on that 10 to 15 year path to essentially becoming a licensed architect uh, is part of that education uh, include, let's say the ins and outs of one, you know, running your own firm, but then two, like understanding the benefits and impacts and importance, but also kind of like drawbacks of these types of activities like publications and accreditation and that sort of way. Is that something you just learn over time through trial and error and through experimentation? My education, and I think this is common within architecture, it was very far removed from the reality of practice. Oh, wow. Um, architectural education is like a, you know, ivory tower sort of absolute creativity and historical principles. And um, of course, there are like courses on engineering and building science. Um, but it's something that I think... Um, a lot of the education happens in practice and in the jobs. And I think that's part of why the licensing requirements um, are set up the way they are to require so many hours. So none of this marketing publication world, um, you know, soliciting new business networking was part of, was part of my formal education at all. Um, It's definitely something that I learned over time. It's something that I learned, you know, a little bit about in my past jobs, but didn't fully understand until right. I was until I was doing them on my own. 
So it is in fact really just something that you have to jump in head first and, and, and kind of experiment with and develop your own path through, which I think is, is quite interesting and probably daunting as you're, as you're, as you're doing it as well. Um, I, I am curious, for example, you talk about like diversifying your offering as a, as an opportunity for growth. And how about like expanding from a geography standpoint? Is there like dream cities or places in the world that you would love to, to leave your imprint on through your architecture? That's a great question. Um, so we are working internationally. Um, we work on our international projects are typically vacation homes for people that are that are based out of Toronto because our work mostly grows through word of mouth. Right. Um, so whether they're repeat clients or new clients that are friends with people whose homes we've done here, and we're working in some really um, amazing places. I I love doing vacation homes. Um, I, I think I would want to continue to focus sort of on the Caribbean islands and South America. Um, you know, it's amazing to learn how to work in these climates when they have very different uh, rainfalls and strength of sun and, yeah. you know, factoring all of those things into the architecture is, is exciting for me. Um, and I also love, you know, in Canada, I really think it's important to have, uh, a relationship with nature and, and, you know, this indoor outdoor experience in any living space, but sometimes that's a tiny terrace and sometimes your view is another house. Right. And what's really amazing with some of these vacation properties is just the quality that you can infuse into the architecture just from views and fresh air and wow. cross breezes and those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I think, I, I just love working in, you know, learning about new climates, but working in places where you have an opportunity to integrate um, the nature into the work. Very cool. And I guess, I mean, maybe a final question for you is, do you have this dream design that you just haven't had the chance to bring to life yet? Is there something that has like formed as your um, vision has evolved and matured over the years? Is there this dream home with these, you know, and it, that you've, that you've been hoping to bring to life that you just haven't had the chance yet? Or is it, is it always a blank slate and you evaluate it from the need of the individual, this, the environment, like you just mentioned, kind of the property and kind of the nature around it? Uh, is it more like that? Or, or is there some underlying like dream design that you've just haven't had the chance to bring to life yet? Every project is different. And we get a lot of our inspiration of the project from this site and from the yeah. clients. Um, each of our projects have sort of two parallel um, theses that that we always refer back to throughout the project. And one is like, this is the architectural concept behind this house. And so every decision we make has to sort of filter through that. And then the other one is like, this is the client's brief or vibe or whatever it is, you know, whether it's somebody that has an open door policy and their kids have a million friends that come over or yeah. one of our clients told us like they want to be the house with the best snacks and like have a massive <laughs> pantry and like a stocked fridge, you know, so every design we make, we, we filter back through those. Um, and I love to reinvent the wheel. We, we don't repeat details. We don't repeat designs from, from one project to another. We've had some um, circumstances where projects have been canceled and those are sort of like the lost opportunities for me. Right. And those are the ones that like live in my head and 
I feel like they still need their day. So recently we had a project um, on such a beautiful property for a lovely family in a very conservative area of the city where there was a um, neighborhood association that came out very strongly against us in the approvals. And they were sort of anti-change and anti-modern architecture and anti-new people even moving into the neighborhood. Like the whole thing was, was just very antiquated and like now from a distance, somewhat entertaining, but just, it was, awful. <laughs> it was awful. And they, they bullied our clients literally out of the neighborhood. They sold, they ended up selling oh the goodness. property and they didn't build. And we had this incredible house that we had worked with them for a year to design, you know, the perfect house for them, but also the perfect house for this site. Yeah. And, and it, so, and, and we have other examples like that too. And so it's those houses that I've already designed that didn't get to come to fruition and didn't get to be constructed that, you know, maybe there'll be an opportunity instead of completely designing something from scratch that elements of that would come into it. That's very cool. That's very cool. And I think that this entire, uh, there's almost like a romance to this, even as I hear you describing a home being perfect for the family, perfect for the site, the environment, it really is such a passion and kind of love driven pursuit and this desire to make something beautiful, but functional that, you know, makes and inspires happiness in the people living there as well as the people like looking at it and observing it. I think that is a very cool thing. It's always why I've been fascinated with the space. And, and ultimately this has been such a fascinating conversation. So Brenda, I've hugely appreciated this. This has been great. Um, I can't wait for people to hear this. Uh, Thank you for your time. And I honestly look forward to connecting again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, and yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation another time.